Well, our uh, time tonight, we come back to the text in Daniel chapter 9. If you would take and turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9 and verses 20 to 27. Daniel 9 and 20 to 27. And last week after our brief, re, brief recap of Daniel, was part, which was part of the first point of our message, that is what has already been. And that was because those things that we have covered in the previous chapters and verses are those which have already been. That is both to Daniel and to us. Uh, particularly because chapters 1 to 6 are history of Daniel and also his prayer in chapter 9 because it focused on Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy. It focused on the past. And then uh, in those other chapters, 7 and 8, although a prophetic text, still in many ways that which has already been because now... Daniel is going to understand the details of those prophecies, whereas you recall, previously he did not. When we looked at the end of chapter 8 and verse 27, we saw that Daniel did not recognize, even though the prophecy had been explained, exactly what was going on. And now, again as we discussed last week, he will have an understanding. He will have insight and understanding, as verse 22 of chapter 9 specifically states. And thus this prophecy, though future, would be known as if it is something that had already been. It will indeed be fully known. And that's pretty staggering when we recognize that chapter 7, as we discussed, talks about all of the prophetic timeline from that point forward through the future parallel to chapter 2 as you remember and Daniel didn't get that he also didn't get chapter 8 where he was being revealed the aspects of the next two coming kingdoms media Persia and Greece but now these things he will grasp in full measure We've also seen that our sections a direct continuation of Daniel's prayer in verses 1 to 19 how do we know that? Well, look at verse 20 at the first words. Now, while I was still speaking and praying. The word now is a conjunction that connects us back to the previous section. That would be enough. But topically, we see that he is still in prayer. He is still speaking in prayer. He is still pouring his heart out to God when Gabriel comes to him. And you remember that our application of how the text motivates our faith was in the great need we all have to expand our prayer lives. To focus on the aspects of confession. To focus on recognizing all that Daniel showed us in prayer. To recognize God's great desire to see us come to him in prayer and to bring those needs and to do so therein more expectantly, more passionately, more excited and zealous to know that God's desire is to answer our prayer requests. It's fantastic to recognize that we get to just come to God in prayer. To recognize that he too desires and delights to have us bring those prayers is just for me a fantastic encouragement. And I hope it is for you as well. One of the main elements last week was the answer to Daniel's prayer. 
And you remember that that was namely the return of God's glory. He was desirous that God would receive the glory and that specifically that would apply to the Temple Mount or the Holy City and to Daniel's people. And we saw that that was exactly what he was praying for at the end of verse 20. And we could just read the whole verse, uh, Daniel 9 and 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, there in the focus, his people, presenting my supplications before God, the before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God which we discussed is Zion is Jerusalem is the place that the temple exists is the place that God said his name would exist and yet now we know that it is not existing there because the Lord has allowed Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to come and destroy it so as we recognize all of these things that the, it was the restoration of God's glory to the Temple Mount and the prayer for the captivity of Israel, this was the end of our second point last week, what is yet to come about. So now with that, let's come back to our title for tonight, which is the same as last week, an arousing announcement. And this is indeed an arousing announcement as we recognize all that is proclaimed in this text and that, that what we see tonight in our three points, two of which we've covered, but the third tonight, three facets of prophecy to motivate your faith. Three facets of prophecy to motivate your faith. So as our second point ends, our third point begins and I've titled our third point, what will again occur what will again occur there's a bit of a paradox in that statement I hope you see it and it is because this has already been proclaimed to Daniel in chapter 2 and 7 and in chapter 7 he did not understand it but now it is occurring again and even in the subject of our point is some repetition so let's go to Verse 24, as we end the second point and begin the third. Verse 24 of chapter 9 reads, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This is perhaps the most well-known of Daniel's prophecies. Some have argued that it is the most well-known of the Old Testament prophecies. And many scholars argue that it is the most complex of the Old Testament prophecies, if not the most complex prophecy in the Bible. There is a bunch that is going on in this text. And so as we recognize that and, and how important this is, we also understand that in many ways, this is the, the fulcrum or the center point upon and around which all of the prophecy of Daniel and indeed all of the prophecy of scripture rests. 
And so it's very critical that we spend time trying to dig into these particular. And our verse begins with 70 weeks. Scholars are nearly unanimous, which nearly never happens, that this term weeks means seven years. So the term weeks is a term that means seven years. Years. Now, some then surmise that the term weeks is uh, just something that is a, a figurative or a spiritualized meaning because it's not what we know of a week today. A week today is a seven-day period, perhaps a a full week beginning on Sunday and running through Saturday, uh, as is traditionally considered a one-week period. And we say, well, how is this? I mean, this seems like somebody must be um, using figurative or symbolic language because that's a week is not anything more than seven days. Well, remember, beloved, how we interpret the Bible. Not based on what it means to us today, But as we look at the grammatical historical meaning of the text, the grammatical historical hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation, what we want to look is at the, the original grammar of the text and the historical application and context of the audience to whom it was given. So it's not a function of what weeks means to us today. We have to go back and understand what was going on in the Jewish mindset. And the Hebrew term, the singular Hebrew term, sabu, which is used here, this is literally sabuim, sabu in the Hebrew text. It's a repetition of the same word, 77s, if you will. The, the repetition of this particular word and that word is a common word in the Hebrew world meaning groups of sevens. This is near, nearly parallel to our English term decade. Now when we think of a decade, what do we think of? Ten years. Literally the word decade means a group of ten things. We immediately often jump to years because we think of that time frame. But in the root form of the mean, root form of the word, it means a group of 10 things. Well, that's exactly the same as the Hebrew word sabu. It means seven things, a group of seven things. So when we recognize that that's what's going on, this phrase then means seven groups of 70 years. Seven groups of 70 years. Now, I know that you all love math like Nick and I do. I gave him the chart and he was just giddy today and we're going to get to that in a minute. But 490 years. And again, people go, okay, 490 years. Well, that must be about that. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's close to that. Maybe it's 460. Maybe it's 510. No, it's not. We have to recognize that what the Bible speaks of in these kind of languages is what we must recognize it to mean specifically. Those who say that this is figurative or spiritual argue that several of the terms in the Bible with respect to time are not specific or literal. That is a badly flawed perspective to come to interpreting God's word. And say, oh, well, a lot of this is just general. 
and it and isn't specific. Do we serve a God that is general? Oh, I'll save about some of those people. I'll save about some of those people. No. He said, I'll save her and I'll save him and I'll save her and I'll save him. He knows everything about everything. He is a God of specifics. He has specifically chosen every word in this book. So let us not ever go into the text and say, oh, you know, it's, it's a general interpretation of what's going on. Listen to, for instance, Exodus chapter 12 and verses 40 to 41. Exodus chapter 12 and verses 40 to 41 as we think of numbers and specificity. Exodus 12 and 40 reads, Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Okay, 430 years. Verse 41. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Not 430 days less one, or 430 years less one day, or plus one day, to the very day. God is tremendously specific as he gives us time frames in the scripture. Another verse confirming the specificity and literality of the Bible timelines is in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings 6 and 1 reads, Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign o over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. God is not general about his description of time frames in the Bible. And we need to recognize that when he talks about seven weeks, 70 weeks of seven, that he is not talking in general phraseology. Again, this also takes us back to our grammatical historical principle of literal meaning. One of the first things that, uh, uh, that hermenetician Milton Terry wrote in his book that he published back in the late 1800s, the first hermeneutics textbook that we're aware of, or first Bible interpretation textbook, he said, if the literal meaning makes sense, seek no other sense. If this is what the text says, let's not start looking at other things to try to explain what it means. And this prophecy is extremely accurate. And the precision is literal as we'll see. Now, before we dig further, I want to firmly establish our chronology. I've done this uh, briefly before as we've gone through Daniel. And there were some questions on that. And I'm not sure if I sufficiently answered them. But hopefully, this will help clear up any questions. So if you would take the sheet that I handed out or that you picked up on the way in. If you're watching from home, I obviously haven't put this out so you can pick it up tonight. But I would be happy to email it to you if you'll send me an email. This timeline is something that I think gives us great understanding. Because 
we have to understand all that God is telling us. And I want to go over, there's a lot of material here, there's a lot of dates, but it's important that we really lock down in our minds what's happening in the biblical timeline around Daniel's prophecy. The first chart, and you'll notice if you want to look these up further at the bottom of the back page, are the uh, sources for all of these charts, so you can look them up on your own and see other details around them. The first book is from Daniel Tanner and his excellent commentary on the book of Daniel. And he notes that in the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC is when the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by the Assyrians. He goes on to talk about Isaiah predicting Babylon's invasion in 701. In 612, Nineveh is sacked by the Medes and the Babylonians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So this is the downfall of the major world player at that time, which led to the Babylonian Empire. We see Daniel in Babylon from 605 B.C. to about 535 B.C. We don't have a date for his death. We see the, the father of Nebuchadnezzar's years listed there. We see Nebuchadnezzar coming to power in 605. We've spoken about this before and the importance of this date. We'll see a bit more in a moment. Daniel is exiled in 605 to Babylon. This was Nebuchadnezzar's attack upon his first captivity, but his second attack on, um, on Judah and on Jerusalem specifically. And it's here that Daniel was deported. The uh, second deportation is in 597. And that was when Ezekiel is taken captive. And then in 586, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. And this is effectively the final straw of anyone remaining in Judah and in Jerusalem. Now you remember there were a few people that the captain of the guard left in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was one of them. And they basically very soon after abandoned and went to Egypt. So Jerusalem is sacked and effectively destroyed. We see Cyrus the Great being mentioned in 559 to 530. His conquering of Babylon in 539, another very important day. And then his decree permitting the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple in 538. These are critical dates in the timeline of Daniel. In 516, the Jewish temple is effectively rebuilt. And in 444, Nehemiah then carries forth with the rebuilding of Jerusalem proper after the temple had been constructed. The other dates are there just for your general perusal and understanding. Again, we've talked about many of those, particularly with regards to Alexander the Great and the uh, the. Grecian Empire down through the Maccabean Revolt after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, which is what Daniel chapter 8 is all about. And you can go back and listen to those messages. Down below that, some text that I've added, um, 609 BC. Very important date because it is the date that Egypt replaces the last proper king of Israel. 609 BC becomes the date where we see the first judgment in the series of judgments that would come upon Judah and Jerusalem. 
There will be three more at the hands of Babylon, but this first one at the hand of Pharaoh Necho occurred in 609 BC. You'll see the text there in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, should you desire to look further in that, and I hope that you do. Now, this was where Jehoahaz, who was King Josiah's son, is taken captive by Pharaoh Necho. This is important for us because this is the last true king of Israel. Now there will be three more men who are called king, but none of them are placed through God and through the hierarchy and leadership of the previous king. The first one is placed by Pharaoh Necho, and that is Jehoiakim, also known as Eliakim. He is Josiah's oldest brother. And he rules from 609 to 598. Again, not a proper king because he is crowned by Egypt and not God. And he reigned through the first Babylonian invasion of 605 BC. You can see the dates that discuss his life in Kings and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Following him was Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is captured in the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and he reigned three months from 598 to 597. And we see that he was taken with Daniel into captivity. The texts in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles listed. The final king was Zedekiah who was also known as Mataniah and he was Jehoiachin's uncle. And he is the king that is killed in the final and third destruction and deportation by Babylon in 586 BC. He is the king who was told by several of the prophets that he would not see his offspring. And of course, as they capture him, they capture he and his sons fleeing from the city at night. And as daybreak comes, they slay his sons in front of him and then gouge his eyes out and take him in chains to Babylon. So, some horrific stuff. Turning the page over, because we can't have one good page of charts without another, takes us to the chronology of the visions of Daniel. These also come uh, from uh, Paul Tanner's uh, commentary. It's, It's... Important for us to see all of these visions and the time frame at which they occur because it helps us understand the chronology regarding the vision in chapter 9. Chapter 7, this first vision, that first year of Belshazzar is about 553 BC. The second vision, the third year of Belshazzar, i.e. three years later, is 550 BC. That, of course, chapter 7 is the overall vision that Daniel receives. Chapter 8 of all of the beasts. Chapter 8 becomes the two beasts, which are Media, Persia, and Greece. And then the third vision, which we are in, is in the first year of Darius. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 9, by the way. And this occurs in 539 to 538 BC. The fourth vision will occur further in 535. Let's look at a few additional prophetic timetables and details. These from uh, John Whitcomb in his commentary on Esther and Dr. MacArthur's Bible, uh, study Bible. First, we have Isaiah prophecies of King Cyrus of Media Persia 150 years before his birth. 
prophesies of him by name and the role that he will fill. And that's in Isaiah 44, 28 to 45, 4. Then we see Jeremiah's fulfilled vision of punishment on Israel of 70 years in light of the Sabbath violation. That we've talked about repeatedly is in Jeremiah 25.11 and Jeremiah 29.10. And this is where we really start boiling down the facts. Look at the years. That 70 year judgment is from 609 BC to 539 BC. What happens in 609 BC? The first judgment upon Judah with Pharaoh coming and removing Josiah's son as king. This is the first act of discipline upon Judah. 70 years following that to today, 539 is where Babylon has now been destroyed. We are in the first year of Darius in chapter 9. Babylon has been wiped out. We saw previously the battle in which that occurred in the, uh, in the distinction of the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon on the page before. 70 years. Daniel recognizes this completion. He recognizes Babylon has now been destroyed. Jeremiah 29.10 specifically speaks of Nebuchadnezzar who is representative of the power of Babylon being defeated. That has now occurred. This is the, the launch pin that helps Daniel know what's going on. Furthering our discussion, the first year of Cyrus and the beginning of the second temple in Jerusalem is in 538 BC per our chart. Also the text Ezra 1, 1 to 4 and 2 Chronicles 36. The defeat of Babylon, again indicating the end of the 70 year captivity is October 29th, 539 BC. That is an extra biblical source from the Babylonian uh, documents that have been uncovered archaeologically and they have specifically identified that date and time. The completion of the temple, that is the temple that the first exilic group went back to Jerusalem to finish, was 516 B.C. Then moving down, hence the space there, we have Esther and her time under King Ahasuerus, 486 to 464 B.C., we have the second post-exilic return under Ezra, in 458 BC, this is Ezra chapter 7 to 10. And then we have the third post-exilic return under Nehemiah, which is 445 to 444 BC, Nehemiah chapters 1 to 13. Why is all of that important? Because of the final bullet point that we list here. It is this point that is held as the beginning of the 70-week prophecy. So this becomes a critical flow down to this point and we'll discuss how the text further expands and brings that forward. So keep that handy. We may even add to that and uh, bring you a modified version in the weeks ahead. But the 70 weeks reaches its pinnacle as Dr. Roscup notes through the centuries past the first advent of Christ, and on to his second coming. This is what we're talking about. 
We are looking at all of the prophetic timetable and it's not given to us in some willy-nilly about this long kind of period. These, these breakdowns of these weeks are very, very specific. And as specific as we got in identifying the very date of the defeat of Babylon by Cyrus and Darius, we also will see tremendous specificity in the dates all the way up through the prophetic timeline to the death of Messiah and moving forward. So it's really exciting to recognize all of these details. Verse 24 indicates that the prophecy is that which is decreed for Daniel's people and the holy city. And that is, of course, the nation of Israel and the Mount of Olives, or the, excuse me, the Temple Mount, uh, Mount Zion. And as we understand those aspects of this which has been decreed, that decree is the proclamation by God to Gabriel which is now being given to Daniel. So this is, this is part of the decreed will of God which is inviolable. And, and this is where we start to understand the different aspects of the will of God for those of you that have uh, looked at all into that subject and where we see this decreed and perceptive will of God. So this is what's been called out for his people, the people of Israel, and for the holy city. That word holy city connects us right back to verse 20 and the holy mountain of my God that Daniel is speaking about. And as we understand all that is going on to this, Daniel has just been praying for Israel. And now here is his answer. A decreed period of 70 weeks. We've explained that a week is a period of seven years. By the way, another text that further confirms this is Genesis chapter 29. And in Genesis 29 and verse 27, we read this. Genesis 29 and 27, where Laban is speaking to Jacob. And he says, complete the week of this one. Rachel, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Here's further confirmation that when we see that term weeks, it is clearly indicating seven years as our analogy of the faith Another one of our grammatical, hermeneutical methods of interpretation, our, our rules to interpret the Bible, reveals clearly for us. We've also seen Daniel's repeated timing in time of years. This is clearly groups of seven, but some have said, well, maybe it is seven days. Well, then we go to Daniel chapter 9. We go to Daniel chapter 8. And always Daniel's time reference is years. Daniel 9.1 in the first year of Darius. Daniel 9.2 in the first year of his reign. So we're confirmed that clearly we're speaking about a period of seven years over 70 different times. So 490 years. And this is so evident in all that we see in this. Now every year of the 70 years of exile that has just happened 
as prophesied by Jeremiah, represents a cycle of seven years in which the seventh year, that is the sabbatical year, had not been observed. So God was punishing Israel in that they had violated the sabbatical year of giving the land its full rest every seven years for 70 years. He was going to basically boil down the punishment that they could rightly have deserved for 490 years to this 70-year period. We've now ended that period. But they didn't just endure the 70 years of exiles for this. What happened in that 70 years? Did they go through 70 years of punishment? Yes, they did. They were exiled. So why isn't this a done deal, game over, and slate's clean, and we're moving on? Well, the answer is the problem that existed in their heart attitude. It always comes down to our heart attitude and our interactions with God. What do we see as the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 51, 17? The sacrifices of God are lambs and goats and bulls? No. The sacrifices of God from, my, from Psalm 51, 17 are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We see the same thing described for us in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 22. Jeremiah 7, 22 says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. And you go, wait a minute. Isn't that what the law is all about? About burnt offering and sacrifices? Jeremiah has just told us, no, it's not about that. Rather, verse 23, but this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and you will walk in all the way which I command you that it may be well with you. It's about our heart. You know, we are so blessed to have a biblical counseling ministry at our church that some of those that are here tonight participate in. And Gracie's just completed her Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling and Scott Freeman runs. And in this program, the focus is an understanding and primarily as these people work with others in our congregation and even some outside, the focus boils down to the heart, doesn't it? It's really a matter of what our heart is doing. And that's exactly what was going on here. They did not have a proper heart attitude. You could, by the way, also go to Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 to 8, which further elaborate on the heart. So the problem during the exile, beloved, is there was not a proper heart attitude amongst the people of Israel. And I'll tell you what, you don't have to spend much time in the Bible to see it. You go get into the book of Ezekiel and you see the most hard-hearted people. In fact, in chapter 4 of Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to make your forehead as hard as flint. Just like the hard-headedness of the people that you're ministering to. 
And they continued to deny him. They continued to mock him and laugh at him. And this was the problem. Their heart was bad. They did not recognize the time of their visitation and what God was doing in this punishment. Think about Hebrews chapter 12. And the discipline that God brings to every one of us of his children. No discipline seems pleasant for the time that you're enduring it. But in the end, what does it bring forth? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So discipline has a purpose, but they were missing it. And a scripture tells us when God disciplines us, if we don't get it, he's going to help us learn that lesson as well again. Had a, a dear pastor who was in his 80s in Haley not long after I'd been saved and he'd come to preach and we were so thankful to have somebody to come and preach as we were in between pastors. And he said, you know, I've just come from Washington State where my home is and my basement flooded. And we're like, oh, what a bummer. You know, he goes, yeah, I, you know, I had remodeled it and I had couches down there. It was kind of a nice little sitting area and it's all underwater. And we're like, oh, that's so bad, pastor. He goes, yeah, this is the third time. He goes, I I hope I'm learning what the Lord's trying to teach me here because I'm kind of getting tired of this lesson. Maybe some of you understand that because that's how the Lord works. And we see very specifically that there was not a right heart attitude during this exile and that God prophetically told them exactly what would happen. And that occurs in Leviticus 26 and verse 18. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 18. This is, this is a staggering verse in light of the timetable and all we're just reading. Leviticus 26 and 18. I'm going to just back up to verse 14 for context. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, remember Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are the two chapters in the Old Testament you want to remember. They are the blessings and curses chapters in the law. So this is the blessing and curse chapter in Leviticus. First 13 verses are the blessings. After that we have... Uh, 34 verses of curses. <laughs> Guess which one was likely to occur. So let's jump back again to 2614. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will point, appoint over you a sudden terror consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up he's go back and look at Ezekiel's warning to the nations specifically filled out in that text in verse 16 Verse 17, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. Hmm, wonder who that could have been. Oh, maybe Nebuchadnezzar. And those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. But listen to verse 18. If also, after these things, you do not obey me, i.e. after the punishment of Babylon, after 70 years of captivity, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. 
Seven weeks of 70, prophetically detailed in Leviticus 26, 18. This is what, what's next, as is indicated in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, where it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city, and here's what for, to finish the transgression. The transgression could have been done had their heart have turned, had they have recognized the time of their visitation, the time of their judgment and their discipline by the Lord. But they did not. So now more is being decreed in order to finish the transgression. The transgression is well translated as rebellion or revolt. This looks at the the long history of Israel's rebellion as Tanner notes. It looks back to the time that Israel was rebellious in the wilderness. How they were rebellious as they came into the land. So evident in the book of Judges. As they continued to rebel with their idols. Into the time of Saul and even David. Particularly after Solomon with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And all of the divided kingdoms and the idolatry that was going on in both the northern ten tribes. And Judah and Benjamin to the south. There was horrific wickedness and rebellion and revolt. Israel's revolt was so evident that not only did it continue through that period, not only does it continue through the period of our prophecy, but as Tanner notes, it will culminate with Israel's final rejection of their Messiah. And this is what we're seeing as that time that's being spoken about to finish the transgression. Israel's punishment began in 722 BC and it continued. Judah's began in 609 and continued in her captivity to the destruction in 586 and throughout the exile and it's still ongoing. And again, we will see that climax as she rejects her Messiah, which by the way, is prophesied also for us in the law, in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 32, 15 to 43. Deuteronomy 32, 15 to 43. I'm going to read just a couple verses of that for you, just so you can, again, hear the specificity that was spoken about of Israel's rejection and their continuance of rebellion past the time of Babylon through the exile and onward all the way to the time of Messiah. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 32 beginning in verse 15. Deuteronomy 32 and 15. But Jeshurun, another name for Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods who they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you. And forgot the God who gave you birth. Specific references to the idolatry and to the wilderness rejection of Moses. 
and to the rock which was Christ. Verse 19, the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, i.e. Assyria, Babylon, and to follow the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Concluding, this prophetic text in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 at verse 40. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Right there in those verses is the final return of Messiah in Revelation 19 and the battle of Armageddon, and the restoration of the Gentiles, all prophetically described, all part of the prophecy before us. Verse 6 entails these six features of prophetic description, three that are negative, the first we've read to finish transgression, the next two negative to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, And then three positive, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. These six are extremely specific regarding the restoration of Israel and mankind, but specifically Israel to whom the prophecy is related, and also to her restoration. Think about them, to finish the transgression to finish the revolt and the rebellion. What is required to finish the revolt and the rebellion of Israel? It's until such time as she bows her knee to her Messiah, isn't it? Isn't it exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 12? Furthermore, to make an end of sin. What could make an end of sin? the shed blood of the Savior, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the specific components that we're speaking about in this prophecy are exactly what are being alluded to here in unique facet. And then after that, to make atonement for iniquity, to atone for, to cover that sin. Again, Christ had to come to be that perfect sacrifice so that he could be the one to make the end of sin and to make atonement for iniquity, specifically referencing that which we're going to see directly. Then the three positive, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is not talking about uh, righteousness which is imputed, that which we have today through Christ's work on the cross. This is talking about true and ultimate righteousness. When will that happen? 
We won't see that occur until we get into the conclusion of the end times. And we'll talk much more about that. To seal up vision and prophecy. When does the conclusion of the prophecy end? At the end of time. At the beginning of the eternal state. In Revelation 21 and 22. And to anoint the most holy place. Literally to anoint the holy of holies. When was the Holy of Holies anointed after this point in Daniel's life? Was there another temple that was built shortly thereafter? Absolutely. The second temple. And as we've discussed, the glory of the Lord did not return to that temple. That temple was not anointed. Will it be the third temple that is built such that Antichrist can desecrate it in Revelation? No. The glory of the Lord did not return to that temple and it will be destroyed. The temple that will be anointed is the millennial temple, the fourth temple and the anointing will come from the anointed one, Messiah, who will sit upon its throne. These are what are being spoken about and the ideas of holiness. The word holy is repeated three times in verse 24. Again, it is the holy city and then it is the holy of holies and righteousness, the parallel to that. And these are the things that are coming forward. And what does he tell us about when that will occur? So you are, verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks And 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat. Even in times of distress. We are going to dig in next week. To exactly those specific time frames. Of 7 weeks and 62 weeks. And the culmination of the 69 weeks. And when the declaration to rebuild occurs. So that we can see this incredibly specific. And glorious time frame of this prophecy coming forth. Father, thank you for the encouragement of this part of your word. Lord, how we must understand that the incredible beauty that we see and the specificity in your word is that indeed which must motivate our faith because it helps continue to confirm for us your perfect word made more sure. That same prophetic word made more sure that Peter spoke of in his second epistle. That it would encourage our hearts and it would strengthen us. And Lord, we would just go forth in greater power knowing what you are doing. Knowing what you're doing in the prophetic timetable of the events that you have established to the very day. But to be more sure and encouraged in the events of our very lives. And the work that you have called us to do in proclaiming your son. And we pray that in all of this you would be glorified. And we give you thanks because we know it is your work. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.